while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin in the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. These are the words of Almighty God. May they produce faith and understanding in those who hear them. Well, we've gotten to one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to interpret. In fact, theologians are in such disagreement about this passage that even those within the same eschatological camps or end times circles, they dispute amongst one another. There are dozens of interpretations. The real question is, what is this referring to? When will these things take place? Is it referring to the end of world history? Or is it, des or is it describing some other period of time? And who is this anointed one? Is this a king? Is it a prophet? Is it a high priest? Or is this Jesus himself? Though there are many more views on this text, I will briefly explain to you four predominant understandings that are espoused today. First, there is the Maccabean interpretation. This view holds that the 77s culminates with the rise of Antiochus IV and the Maccabean revolt against him. The 70th week would have finished right after Antiochus died and the Jews took back the temple, cleansing it once again. Second, there is a historic messianic understanding which states that the 70th week ends with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Third, there is the amillennial interpretation which claims that the 70th week began with the first advent of Christ and continues on through the church age. And finally, there is the dispensational view 
Here, it is argued that the 69th week ended with Christ's first advent. And since then, there has been a gap. The 70th week will begin in the future with the rise of the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist. This final week will finish with Christ's second coming. Now, while there are more understandings than that out there, these are the four prominent positions today. And though I myself ascribe to an amillennial view of eschatology, I am personally persuaded by the Maccabean perspective, for in my opinion, it fits the plainest reading of the text. That being said, all four of these views have persuasive arguments, and this should not be something that divides us as a church. For there is a greater message to be drawn from this text. My hope is that as we dig in further, that this bigger message will come to the forefront, overshadowing any error that I may communicate along the way. That being said, let's dive in. If you recall, Darius the Mede had captured Babylon, ending the reign and life of King Belshazzar. In the first verses of chapter 9, we realize that Daniel had searched the scriptures and discovered in Jeremiah a prophecy stating that the Babylonian captivity would last 70 years. This prompted him to pray for his people that they might return to their homeland and rebuild the temple. In this prayer, Daniel confessed the sins of his people and pleaded for God to show mercy. His appeal was based on God's glory and not on his own righteousness or merit. This is the context for our passage. Daniel saw this prophecy and beseeched God for a restoration to Jerusalem and for the temple to be rebuilt. How would God respond? Verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. This holy hill that Daniel is referring to is a temple mount. To understand Gabriel's answer, we must first understand the question that is being asked. Bottom line is this. Daniel wanted to know if the 70 years prophesied in Jeremiah meant that God's punishment was finished. He wanted to know if his people would return to the promised land and rebuild the temple. Would the morning and evening sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins be made once again? Would God dwell among his people once more? Notice, too, that Gabriel, this messenger of God, came to Daniel in swift flight. God did not delay to give Daniel an answer. In fact, God had already been hinting at such a return in his previous visions given to Daniel. The Lord had been showing him that the powers of this world would, sh would soon shift and change. 
from Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue to the vision of the four beasts by the great sea to the battle between the ram and the goat. All of these were communicating a message to Daniel. The most high God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. These kingdoms, they are established and dismantled according to God's will, fulfilling God's purposes for his people. Now, God would give to Daniel an answer to his question concerning the Jewish return to Israel and the rebuilding of the temple. Verse 22. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Notice again how Daniel's prayer had been answered swiftly. The message was not delayed because Daniel was highly esteemed by God. Now the ESV, it translates this phrase as greatly loved by God. The Hebrew word here can carry both connotations so it's hard to say which translation gets it correct. Most likely, they're both correct. But remember, Daniel had just confessed horrific sins to God. Oftentimes, confessions like this can bring a person's spirits low. Gabriel, he is encouraging Daniel by proclaiming to him his standing before God. Daniel is highly esteemed. He is greatly loved. Because of such reasons, God answers his prayer. God answers the prayers of all those he loves and esteems. James 5, verse 16 says this, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. If you are in Christ, you too are loved and esteemed. For God no longer sees you as sinful. Rather, he sees you with the righteousness of Christ. And if you have Christ's righteousness, then how powerful and effective are your prayers? God listens to his people. He does not delay in answering. Verse 24. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people in your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Here we see Gabriel summarizing the message that God has for Daniel. Remember, Daniel desired to know if the end of the 70 years meant a return to the promised land and a rebuilding of the temple. God replied with an answer of 70 sevens. 70 sevens has been decreed for the people of Israel. 
This is analogous with the Sabbath years that we read about in our first scripture reading in Leviticus. Seven sabbatical Seven sabbatical cycles, or 49 years, led to the year of Jubilee. A year when slaves were freed. A time when all the debts were forgiven. And all the land of Israel was returned to its rightful owners. These 77s of Daniel are equal to 10 Jubilee cycles. In 2 Chronicles, the author notes the same thing concerning the Babylonian exile. 2 Chronicles 36, verses 20 and 21. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment with the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. You see, we could be technical with these numbers and say that God is describing a period of 490 years for a full restoration to the land. But we must realize that numerology in the Bible was not meant to be exact. The purposes of these numbers is not to give a precise date. Instead, they are more symbolic in nature. These emblematic emblematic schemes of time and history are what is known as chronography as opposed to chronology. So 10 Jubilee cycles was an indication of God's completeness. What God is trying to communicate to Daniel was that these 77s were intended to demonstrate the fulfillment of all his purposes. Yes, the time period would be lengthy, but trying to build an exact 490-year timeline misses the point. The intention of these numbers was to indicate the completeness of God's will rather than being an attempt at date setting. What is God's will? We see six of God's purposes laid out for us in the text. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. The first three are one and the same. To finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness. God is trying to put an emphasis on this point. So he repeats it three times. God is holy. He does not abide with sinful people. He meets out justice for their wicked ways. Before the exile, the Jews did not take sin very seriously. Instead, they followed their own ways, ignoring the words of the Lord. They worshiped false idols and false gods, and they openly committed detestable acts. They had seared their consciences, feeling no remorse for their transgressions. 
I wonder if we are any better than those Israelites. We may not bow down to fabricated images, but we have idols nonetheless. To one, money is a cash cow to be revered. The amassing of wealth without care for the poor demonstrates a heart full of greed. To another, pleasure has become their God. It could be sexual sin or an abuse of an intoxicating substance. This person only thinks of themselves and does not care about the others that they hurt. Many today bow down to the God of status. Their reputation is their only concern. They care more about what people think of them rather than what God thinks of them. Our society, our society today has embraced these things, no longer placing guilt or shame upon the person. Like the Jews of old, we do not take sin very seriously. But atoning for sin is not God's only purpose. The flip side of the coin tells us that he also desires to bring in everlasting righteousness. It's not enough to just remove sin, but it must be replaced with something new. The law of God must be fulfilled. To have righteousness or a right standing before a holy God, one must be perfect according to his decrees. As sinful human beings, we do not qualify. Yet there was one who does. Christ Jesus is the only man who lived a sinless life. He fulfilled God's will perfectly. More than that, he also atoned for the transgressions of men through his sacrifice on the cross. It is through this act of obedience that he imparts his righteousness to anyone who will repent and trust in him. Dear friends, do you believe this? Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? Do you have faith in him? If not, then your sins are still upon you, and there can be no forgiveness. God also desired to seal up vision and prophecy. Sealing in the ancient context was a mark of validity or authentication. It's a hard word to say. <laughs> it was also a way to enclose something. And we've seen this theme throughout the book of Daniel. The visions that he received were sealed up because they concerned the distant future. Yet in our context here, Gabriel was referring to the authentication of these prophecies and visions that had been given to Daniel. This period of 77s would validate the dreams that Daniel had. Finally, God desires to anoint the most holy. The Hebrew word here for most holy is Kodesh Kadashim. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> Literally, that means the holy of holies. Daniel would have understood this to have meant that God's purpose was to anoint the inner sanctuary of his temple. 
So it will take 10 jubilee cycles for God to atone for the wickedness of Israel and to bring about his everlasting righteousness. Gabriel explains these things in more detail in the following verses. Let's take this closer look, starting in verse 25. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. Here is where the difficulty of this passage begins. Who is this anointed one? Now, our NIV, it it takes some liberty here by capitalizing anointed one. The The translators must have thought that this is Christ. But that isn't necessarily the case. In Jewish culture, kings, priests, and prophets, they all underwent an anointing before taking up their respective positions. So while Jesus is a possibility here, it could as easily be be referring to a king or a high priest or a prophet during this time of tribulation. And who is this ruler? We will get to his identity in the next two verses, so I'm going to let that question sit for right now. The main point Gabriel is trying to communicate here is that Jerusalem will be rebuilt, but over a lengthy period of time and under difficult circumstances. He mentions streets, which indicates the existence of a market. So there will be years of prosperity. He mentions trenches, suggesting that Jerusalem will have built up its defenses as well. Yet all this would be accomplished during times of trouble. In other words, Jerusalem would be rebuilt, but it would not be an easy process. Verse 26, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice to sacrifice an offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Gabriel now takes Daniel to the end of these 77s. He is describing this last seven. To summarize, the anointed one will be cut off And this ruler will come into an agreement with God's people. Yet in the middle of this agreement, he will put put an end to the sacrifices in the temple. And he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. These horrific acts will not stop until this ruler is put down. From the rebuilding of the temple until its final destruction at the hands of the Romans in A.D. 70. The only time the sacrifices were disrupted was during the reign of Antiochus IV. It was at this time that Onias III was high priest in Israel. 
and he was a devout Orthodox Jew. As Antiochus tried to Hellenize Jerusalem, Onias opposed his measures. In 171 BC, Onias was executed, and Antiochus installed Jason, Onias' brother, as the new high priest. You see, Antiochus viewed this position of high priest like any other political position. So he put in the man who would do his bidding. Yet the pious Jews knew that only God could anoint the high priest. Jason was chosen because he bought in to Hellenization. Under him, a gymnasium was built where Jewish boys would exercise naked according to the Greek customs. Greek names were beginning to replace Jewish ones, and the practice of circumcision was abandoned by many. This began a seven-year period of persecutions to, to those who remained faithful in Israel. And midway through these seven years, Antiochus attacked the city on a Sabbath day, tearing down the defensive walls and slaughtering many of the pious Jews who refused to fight because it was a Sabbath. <clears throat> he then entered into the temple, desecrating it by setting up an image to the god Jupiter and sacrificing a pig to that image. For three and a half years, evening and morning sacrifices were cut off. However, a revolt had sprung up, led by the Maccabees. Yet Antiochus, he did not meet his demise because of this revolt. He did not meet his death on the battlefield. Rather, the Lord sent a sickness to him, which ended his life. In the end, the Maccabees won the day, and cleansed the temple of Yahweh, anointing the Holy of Holies. Thus, we see in the Maccabean revolt that the visions and the prophecies given to Daniel were sealed up. They were validated, and the Most Holy was anointed. Now again, not all view this passage in this way. I personally believe that this is the interpretation that is most faithful to the text, Yet I'm not opposed to hearing other points of view and considering their validity. All this being said, though, the question must be asked, if all this happened 2,200 years ago, then what are we in the 21st century to take away from it? The purpose of this passage is twofold. First, God answers the prayers of his people. Gabriel came swiftly to Daniel and answered the prayer and his question concerning the passage in Jeremiah, whether or not there would be a return to the promised land. In a way, God had been delivering to Daniel these answers all along through the previous visions. God answers your prayers as well. But like Daniel, you too may get an answer that you do not like, an answer describing trials and tribulation. Yet God calls you to trust that he is both good and in control. He works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Second, God has a plan for his people. 
a plan to bring them back into the fold. A return to Jerusalem would not be a return to glory. It would take generations of difficulties, yet it would culminate in God's, God accomplishing his purposes. This story is your story as well. Similar to Israel's struggle to return from exile, your entrance into God's kingdom is filled with striving. There is sin in your life that needs both discipline and justice. Sin must be atoned for. Yet you have Jesus on your side, offering to you his righteousness. He takes up your sin and he bears your burden. And just like Israel, there are evil forces in our world that battle against you. You may not face Hellenization, but our culture nonetheless pressures you to conform. The more you speak the truth of God, the greater will be the attack upon you. But your victory does not come through force or through violence. Antiochus, he was not defeated by human hands. God was victor. Brothers, sisters, your hope for victory lies with Christ. He will deal with your sin and establish his righteousness within you. He sends his Holy Spirit cleansing you from within. For he has made you into the new temple of God. And Jesus has defeated all of your enemies. Sin, death, and the devil. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you do hear our prayers. Though you, your answers may differ from what we would like to hear, we know that your will is beyond any good that we could contrive for ourselves. And though we are wicked and deserving of your justice, you have cleansed us with the blood of your Son upon the cross. And you continue to purify us through the work of your Holy Spirit. Give us the faith to believe these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.